What is a ghost? There are several thoughts on this matter. Even theories that describe the types of ghosts you might encounter. Let's explore two of those. The first kind are referred to as residual ghosts. These ghosts are printed on an environment as the result of a traumatic or emotionally charged event. These spirits often repeat the same actions in the same place, time and time again, and cannot be interacted with as they are essentially an image of the past and are attached to specific items, buildings, as well as the environment. Another form is known as intelligent ghosts. These ghosts are believed to be aware of their surroundings and even have the ability to interact with living people and objects. These are the types of ghosts that people believe respond to Ouija boards and seances. It is thought that these spirits can be tied to buildings, objects, or locations and continue to reside on earth due to unfinished business, grief, guilt, trauma, or fear of passing over. Tales of ghostly encounters are prevalent within communities around the world and even here in Chatham-Kent. I'm Blair Newby, and this is Chatham-Kent Hauntings. On today's episode, we'll be exploring some of Chatham-Kent's most well-known ghostly encounters. Some of you listeners may have even had an experience in one of these buildings. Guiding us today is Sheila Gibbs, Lisa Gilbert, and Jim Gilbert, authors, historians, and organizers of Ghost Walks of Chatham-Kent. Our first tale features the Milner Heritage House. Opposite the Chatham Cultural Center on the southeast corner sits the Milner House, the city of Chatham's museum from 1945 to 1988, and the former home of Robert Milner, carriage maker, a a very prosperous fellow. He had a daughter by the name of Blanche, who was 13 or 14 years old at the time of her death. Blanche had the misfortune to tumble down the steep unit back staircase of the house to her death. We think it would be March 16th, 1896, approximate date. Now, since that time, museum staff responsible for locking up the premises, setting the alarm, and turning off the lights at the end of the day have reported finding the lights turned on when they returned to work in the morning. Strange, yes. Now, this strange happening occurred on more than one occasion and has been reported by different personnel. Now, we wonder if could Blanche be ensuring that no one else sustains a terrible accident down these back stairs? Mm-hmm. Could be. Could be. Blanche's younger sister may live to adulthood, but... Oddly enough, she too fell down a set of stairs in her home on Elizabeth Street while carrying her child in her arms and died. 
The baby, however, survived. However, again, a tragedy struck the Milner family. Robert Milner himself, the the patriarch of the family, he had a heart attack coming down the front stairs of the Milner house and died too. Blanche's full name was Blanche Venus Milner. I always loved that name. And she is buried at Maple Leaf Cemetery. We did a seance one night late at the Milner house. We were after New Year's Eve celebration uh, for a first night. We were in the house uh, doing a program, and we decided that maybe we'd stay a little bit longer and do a, a seance with mm, the Ouija board. I've never been uh, so scared as I did that night when we're doing the Ouija board. Now, I kind of took it as a a joke. I didn't really believe. I had never worked with a Ouija board before, and I didn't have much hope into it. But we often found out some very strange things. And I was keeping my hands on the Ouija board, trying not to move it, because I thought if I had seen it before, it was just people trying to move it. But that was not the case. I had tried to keep my hands as still as possible. But every time we asked a question, the answer moved right to whether yes or no. And the little we knew about Blanche, that seemed to be the correct answer. Um, Ask if Blanche was present, and the board spelled out Y-E-S which gave us such a scare, well, me anyways, we decided not to proceed to ask any further questions. Now, there's also been some other mysterious things happen in the Milner house. Also, this is in in 2010, so not too many years ago. We did a tour of uh, students from Toronto on a field trip. And two teachers accompanying the students lingered in the house looking at the back staircase, but once we had got done our tour. Um, Because the students had been looking around to see the staircase where Blanche fell, oddly enough, it was a still night with no wind, but both the teachers heard the door at the foot of the stairs bang shut loudly. It startled them and made them feel that they had come into contact with the spirit of Blanche. And what we know about Blanche, that is entirely true. So things continue to happen in the Milner house. Um, Nothing really bad, but enough to scare me (laughs) and a lot of students that attended on that conference. And those are the ghostly interactions at the Milner Heritage House. Up next, haunting tales from the Chatham Cultural Centre. The area that we are going to be talking about now is the oldest area settled by descendants of Europeans in Chatham. The first cabin was built by Abraham Iredell, an early surveyor at the corner of Water and William Streets at the end of the 1700s. Whenever a place has seen generations of people live there, with all of the human emotions of anger, jealousy, fear, love, and hate, those emotions create actions which can then result in tragedies such as accidents, suicides, and even murder. 
This story about the Chatham Cultural Centre has been told in bits and pieces for years, and it contains many of the just-mentioned powerful emotions unleashed many years ago. For a bit of background, this building was the home of William Northwood, a former mayor of the city and an extremely prosperous businessman in the 1870s. The ginkgo tree in the parking lot, that's the one with the fan-like leaves, was brought back from the Orient by the Northwood family. When William Northwood moved to Detroit, he sold his magnificent home to T.H. Taylor of the Taylor Mill Complex, which was once located down the street. But by 1923, it had become the Hotel Sanita, and earlier was called the Chatham Mineral Springs Hotel. It was called that because there were these bubbling up waters that people would come to for the benefit of rheumatism or other ailments of the time. According to legend, a distraught woman either hung herself in the hotel or was murdered, and a fire was set to cover up the dire deed. Now this woman haunts the balcony of the theater and the second level of the art gallery. Newspaper reports from the 1970s going back that far report facility workers saw a flash of blue light and felt the room become strangely cool. The custodian of the time was frightened in the basement when he happened to glance up and saw an iridescent light. He described the object as a corpse-like figure hanging from the ceiling. A series of seances was even held in 1969 to communicate with the spirit, but to no avail. So time has gone by, and there are still reports of things happening. Staff who work in the cultural center, particularly when they're alone and may not wish to be named, feel like they are being watched and that their presence is an intrusion. A number of years ago, one of the workers in the art gallery was mounting an exhibition quite late at night, alone on the second level, and thought she heard a voice say, go away. She continued to work, but felt very uncomfortable and scared. She then heard the voice repeat, go away. And despite the urgency of the deadline, packed up her materials and left. Also, the organizers of one of the theater groups here mentioned that she was coming off the stage down the steps in the Kiwanis Theater when she felt something cold go through her. Or did she go through the spirit itself? A number of years ago now, I had a young sensitive, is what I'm going to call this person who had very, very intuitive or psychic abilities, accompany me on this tour. And she offered an interpretation of this story that I find amazing and highly probable. Keep in mind that this young woman, whom I will call Marie, but that's not her real name, did not know the history of the area at all and had never been on one of our ghost walks or read anything about what happened here. So when she was with me, the three of us, it was herself and her mother and myself, 
Outside of the building, she didn't get much information. However, once we went inside to the art gallery, which was open, it was a different story. Marie went upstairs, followed a few moments later by her mother. And as we know, this is where some activity has occurred. Marie entered into a conversation with the woman of our ghost story, whom she encountered at the far end of the gallery near a door. Then she came and told me once I joined her upstairs, and the woman listened. She was very angry. She had been raped, beaten up, and dragged to the roof and thrown off. Then the building was set on fire to cover up the crime. Her name was Marianne. She was 24 and a maid at the hotel. She had been engaged to a young man named Jonathan, who had something to do with the financial aspects of the hotel. A banker, perhaps? And that is how she met him. She had broken off the engagement a month before because she found him to be too controlling. He didn't like it, thought she was cheating on him, and came to the hotel to confront her at night in the basement with a friend. The name Scott came up, but whether it was a first or last name, we couldn't determine that. Marie had the impression that something bad happened in the basement at night. Remember, she didn't know anything about what had happened with the art gallery person. So when that gallery worker felt the breath on her face saying, get out, it was around 10 o'clock at night. Perhaps Marianne was warning her to leave so that Jonathan wouldn't attack her. Marianne looked white, but she was mulatto and had dark wavy hair. Jonathan was fairly well-to-do and worked downtown. The time the incident happened was 1902 or 1912 in late summer. Marie described her fall as a medium fall, and she was still partly conscious when Marianne hit the ground so that her spirit hovered over her body, and she watched her body burn. She relives the terrible crime every year, and Jonathan returns in the night around 10 o'clock and stays until 1 a.m. Now, this information from Marianne was conveyed from mind to mind, not in words spoken aloud. I asked questions, and Marie repeated to me Marianne's answers as she received them. This young woman has been seeing spirits since she was a child, and I believe she gave us a startlingly plausible and amazing explanation into the strange experiences so many workers have had at the Chatham Cultural Center over many years. And that's the story of the paranormal activity that occurred at the Chatham Cultural Center. Next up, we have some tales regarding the ghostly presence at the Chatham Capitol Theater. One of the things that I have learned over the course of compiling our local ghost stories for the past 15 years or more is that when a building undergoes extensive renovations that change its basic footprint, paranormal activity may be stirred up. Now, I'm not talking about simply painting a room, in case you're worried about that, but rather work such as tearing down walls and gutting rooms completely. That is what was done to the Capitol Theatre in Chatham 
which operated as a movie theater for 60 years, starting in 1930. In the 1990s, a dedicated and determined group of individuals transformed the movie theater into a performing arts showplace. This work meant major construction work, removing a false ceiling, tearing down walls, and painstakingly restoring gilding to the Art Deco interior with opera boxes, a new balcony, and a 65-foot fly tower all being added. All of this work required fundraising. And one of the first stories I heard about the Capitol Theater came from one of the first fundraisers to work on the project. He had been part of a group enjoying a social evening at the Capitol and had gone down into the lower area known as the Rotary Lounge to inspect the latest work. He thought he was accompanied by several members of the party, especially when he felt, as well as heard, a heavy pat on his shoulder. He turned, somewhat surprised, and there was nobody there. He was completely alone. This incident caused him to ask questions of the work crew about anything unusual that they had experienced. He soon found out that the supervising foreman had been closing up one night when everyone else but one other worker had gone home. It was dark, and his fellow worker was at the entrance, locking up. He glanced up at the stage area and couldn't believe his eyes when he saw a figure moving across the stage. He was about to call out, thinking that somebody somehow had snuck into the building, when the figure reached the edge of the stage and kept on going through the air until it disappeared right into a far wall. Many years later, Jim Gilbert met up with a policeman who had just retired and who in his youth had worked as an usher at the theater when it was a movie theater. He liked to get to work early in order to get dressed in his uniform and check over things. One day, while sitting in one of the rows of the theater waiting for his shift to start, he saw the figure of a woman come gliding across the stage and disappear into a wall, just as the supervisor had years later. He was both frightened and intrigued, and he never forgot the incident. Jim said that as he described it to me, you know, the man was still shaking his head about what he had experienced. These paranormal experiences always have a huge impact and remain with people for the rest of their lives. Now, one of the earliest projectionists of the movie theater era was one Charlie McGregor, whose domain was the second floor, which was completely gutted and redone. Charlie would operate this cumbersome and heavy projector that could hold giant reels of film that had to be manually changed. So, for example, a film like Gone with the Wind was four hours long. He would have to change those reels halfway through. And he needed to be quick, strong, and proficient. And he was all of those things. Most importantly, he loved the theater and his job. It is not surprising, therefore, that most of the following instances of paranormal activity 
have been attributed to him. One of the former supervisors heard me telling what we knew about Charlie's activities one night. And we were out in the back of the building and we had a group around and he opened the doors and he was listening. And he couldn't wait to add his firsthand experiences. He said that at the time, he practically lived at the theater. He was just there so much. And that all kinds of things had happened with the tools the men were using. They would disappear and then reappear. So, of course, they would leave them in a specific spot so that then the next day they could pick them up and get started again. But Charlie loved to play practical jokes, so he would move them. One worker had a specific example of this tendency. There is a heater in the wall at each of the landings in the stairwell. One time, he had removed the cover in order to work on one and placed the screws on the window ledge along with the tools he needed and any fittings he removed. When he reached for the screws to replace them, they weren't there. He had not left the area at any point, and nobody else had passed by. He had to go down into the basement to find another set of screws. When he got back to reinstall the cover, the original screws were sitting on the windowsill where he had left them. This little trick was particularly bothersome because these screws had to be specially ordered. He had to keep an extra bag on hand because so many were lost all the time. You might say that Charlie liked to screw around. In fact, the workers got used to Charlie pulling these stunts, and while rather intimidated at first by such an unearthly presence messing them about, eventually they began to talk to Charlie and ask him to lay off and give them a break. And guess what? He would. This happened with the choice of radio stations. One of the crew was working on the men's washroom on the second floor with the radio on behind him, tuned to a local radio station. There weren't too many other employees on site at that time. Suddenly, the radio changed to a jazz station. The worker got up to look around to see if anyone had touched the channel, but there wasn't anyone else around. Now, he had become familiar with Charlie by this time, and he asked out loud, Could you put it back, please? He could hear the radio going through all of the different stations to get back to the original one. I recall mentioning this fascinating detail when I had my young sensitive along on one of the walks. She said that Charlie was there listening attentively. And when I mentioned this about the jazz station, he said, well, it's the only music worth listening to. She added that he seemed quite pleased to the attention to his story. Now, he may be the one up in the attic as well playing music because the same supervisor also told me that he has heard what sounds like a party going on in the upper area, like there are 20 or 30 people there. The din was so loud at times that he could hear it all the way down to the theater. He could almost make out what the people were saying, but he just couldn't quite do it. And of course, when he checked, there was nobody there. And those are the haunting experiences that occurred at the Chatham Capital Theatre. Up next, tales from the Chatham Collegiate Institute, otherwise known as CCI.
this section is called Old Favorites because um, it's it, it's a collection of stories that we've told for many years on our on our ghost walks. And this story, it's about CCI. And CCI is certainly a property that Jim and I have been associated with for some time. And uh, when I give ghost walks, I always say, people ask, well, do you believe in ghosts? And I say, well, I, I don't feel that I, I can uh, say one way or another because I don't think I've ever seen a ghost, but later on in the tour, you might hear that I'm associated with it. So this story does involve me. Um, I'm not sure if I saw a ghost or not. You can decide for yourself when you hear the story. So Chatham Collegiate Institute, CCI, uh, the property is the oldest, it's, it's associated with the oldest school in what's now the city of Chatham. In 1854, it was the Chatham Grammar School started. And the Chatham Grammar School eventually morphed into Chatham High School. And then in 1885, they were able to get collegiate status. So it became Chatham Collegiate Institute. The building that's there today actually took them 10 years to get around to building it. It was uh, from 1929 when they had the plans but it wasn't opened uh, until 1939. And it's this building that the ghosts that um, have appeared at CCI are mainly connected to. And the one that I am personally connected to probably involves Norma Stevens. Now, Norma Stevens was a longtime English teacher at CCI. She started teaching in the 1920s, and she was teaching at a time when to be a woman and be a teacher, you had to be unmarried. As soon as you married, you had to quit. So she never married, and really, she was married to the school. She was very strongly connected to the school. And so I think that that's what led to, which is uh, what, uh, what is an unusual occurrence, and that ghostly activity that could be her uh, is associated with the school because she didn't die there. She retired in the late 1950s, I believe it was 1959. And in September of that year, she went on a vacation to Yugoslavia. And unfortunately, she was killed in a car accident in Yugoslavia. So you see, she, she died many, many miles away. But so fast forward, to the late 1990s when I was a teacher at CCI and I used to go to the school late at night on a Sunday night because of course I hadn't got all my schoolwork done and now it was Sunday night and I needed to get it done. So I would go to the school. Sometimes I was there at midnight. So nobody else is there, of course. Now the school was mainly in darkness, but the lights were on the stairwells. So one night, my uh, classroom was at the back of the third floor. But one night I had occasion to go looking for a book that was in a classroom uh, up at the main sort of front hallway on the third floor. And so I walked up there and it wasn't spooky because there were lights, as I said, in the stairwell. So as I was entering that classroom, I heard the jingling of keys 
And I looked down the hallway and I saw a figure at the classroom at the other end of that hallway. I didn't think anything of it. I just thought it was another teacher who was doing the same thing as I was. So then, I don't know, a month or so later, I happened to be in the staff room one Monday at noon hour, and another staff member said, uh, Lisa, were you at the school last night? And that particular Sunday, I hadn't been there. I said, no. He said, oh, I could have sworn it was you because I was working late at night, and uh, I heard a f- I heard what I thought was you come up to the door and jiggle the keys. And it was very definitely high-heeled shoes on the floor. So I thought it was you. And I said, no, it wasn't me, but it could have been Norma Stevens because that classroom, the same classroom that I had seen a figure jiggling the keys was Norma Stevens' classroom. So was it Norma Stevens? Who knows? Other phenomenon have happened. Uh, People have described the slamming of doors for no reason um, and just sort of a feeling of unease on that third floor. There was a case one time when a staff member was there uh, again by himself and saw the doorknob of his classroom, not the same classroom this time, but the doorknob turning. And um, when he went to the door, there was no one there. So Who knows? Uh, There are also a few other stories that are connected to CCI. And these come from a lady who was a longtime worker in the cafeteria. So she used to come very early uh, before anybody was there and before the cafeteria was open because she had to get things ready. And she brought her daughter with her because her daughter, it was too early for her daughter to go to school and she needed to you know, look after her. So she and her daughter experienced a couple of things. First story is they saw a phantom, and this time it was very definitely, it looked like a phantom, um, misty kind of uh, figure of a girl, but they could tell the features of this girl and she looked like she was coming along the line of the cafeteria before the cafeteria was opened. And so they knew she had blonde hair and she looked like she might have been from the 1950s. And as it happened, this woman's mother had gone to school at CCI in the 1950s. So they were looking through yearbooks and they found this girl and they pointed to her. And her mother said, well, that girl was very sick and she ended up in a coma for a couple of uh, years and she did die as a young person. So that could have been her. The other story was very interesting because in this case, same idea. It was early in the morning and they saw this boy passing along the line, trying, you know, as if he was in the cafeteria buying some food. But in this case, he didn't look like a ghost. He looked like a real person. And they said, you know, uh, no, sorry, the cafeteria is closed. And he disappeared. So they did get a good look at him and he was dressed in 1970s clothing and they discovered that this young man had committed suicide when he was at the school. So not surprising when a building has, you know, this kind of age and kind of traditions, right, that you would have ghost stories associated with it. 
And that's it for this week's episode of Chatham Kent Hauntings. Special thanks to our Ghost Walks of Chatham Kent partners, Sheila Gibbs and Jim and Lisa Gilbert, and to our producers, Josh Brody and Spencer Hamilton. Until next haunting. <laughs>